evidence and answers. Many people ask, if the evidence for God is compelling, why are there so many atheists? Christian scholar and philosopher Dr. Richard Howe explains why atheism has grown in popularity, and the reason is not because atheists present irrefutable arguments. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's teaching is taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Dr. Richard Howe spoke about the evidence for God. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org and look up 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You will see all of the messages displayed. Now let's get right to part two of Evidence for God. Generally, that is, the scientific arguments, avoid trafficking the technicalities of academic philosophy, which are less familiar than the general categories of the sciences. In my experience, like when I've heard uh, Dr. Ross speak, we've been together at many conferences, and other scientists, Fuzz Rana, for example, on, uh, at Reasons to Believe, and they can get into the technicalities of their respective sciences, but they're also able to, to get to the sort of punchline at a lay level, and then if you want the technicalities, they'll give you Here's where you get the paper, that kind of stuff. But you could at least understand, or at least I think most of us can understand it at that sort of lay level. And then if you want to delve deeply, that's pretty much impossible with some of the philosophy. Even the stuff that's just the categories are so unfamiliar. If somebody said, well, Richard, give me Aquinas' argument for God's existence. Well, then I'm trying to, well, we got to talk about act and potency, substance, accidents, essence, existence, essay, all these kind of classical Greek philosophical terms. By that time, the... The guys over there like that going, well, I forgot what I asked. I don't think I want to know. Now, what are some of the weaknesses? Well, in my opinion as a philosopher, without further argument, the arguments by and large don't prove that the cause of the universe still exists. Now, there may be some since I made this slide that do do that. But in my experience, the Kalam argument proves at least at the time that it was a cause of the universe, it existed. But whether it still exists today, you would give supplemental arguments to do that. Without further arguments, they do not demonstrate that the cause of the universe is God, at least in the classical theism. Where's David at? Right, where are you, brother? Okay. So we just had a great conversation about this Thursday night. Was it Thursday night? So the classical attributes of God, the superlative attributes of God, I don't think it delivers those the way classical philosophy may do. And I'll hint a little bit about what that looks like in my talk uh, tomorrow. Without further arguments, they do not demonstrate that the universe, oh, so classical theism, I made that emphasis there, that just is the, the God of, uh, that has these superlative attributes, simplicity, immutability, impassibility, omniscience, immateriality, all good, all wise, all powerful, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, those kinds of things, which by the way, are fading away in contemporary evangelicalism. So one of the slide decks you might want to get is one titled, God Fading Away where I try to document a fairly consistent picture of the classical theism from the church fathers until about the 17th century. And then you start seeing this trail off where various attributes, even among evangelicals, are now starting to be fade away. Omniscience went away not too many decades ago with the open theism, the rise of open theism and its prevalence in, in contemporary evangelical thinking, and then others as well. So you can get that deck. Now, there are also my weaknesses in this regard. Certain aspects of the science are disputed, uh, understandably. 
Uh, Hugh was just uh, enlightening some of us about uh, some scientists might think that the universe is much older than the 13.7 billion years that they think that it is into the quadrillions of years. So that's a, that's a debate. So when there are such disputes and they can get technical, they're beyond the knowledge of non-scientists like me. I can't referee that debate. You know, well, I just can't. So having said that then, let's look at a little bit of evidence from the sciences regarding the existence of God. Probably the most utilized one are arguments that point to the fact that the universe began to exist a finite time ago. Now, given that there is a universe, and if you are talking to somebody and you're trying to share your faith, and they're not sure whether there is a universe, you might want to turn around and run as far away as you can, all right? You know, what do you say to somebody that thinks you're in the matrix? I said, well, we used to call that insane when people weren't sure whether they were or weren't in the matrix. So as a philosopher, I I resent the fact that once the matrix came out, a whole bunch of people thought they were starting to do philosophy. And I said, the only reason why the matrix puzzle works is because you're in the theater watching the movie, you're not in the movie. And the fact that you're in the theater watching the movie is already proven that you're not in the matrix. But anyway, that's another. (laughs) But given that there's a universe, then it either has a beginning or it doesn't. It either, if it has a beginning, it's either caused or it's not. And if it's caused, that causes either personal or not. Now, the person who brought this argument really to the forefront in recent decades is a hero of mine, William Lane Craig, and his book, The Kalam Cosmological. There you go. James and you and Dr. Craig are like this, aren't you? And that's his James way down here. And, so, and this is Bill Craig, and I'm not sure who this guy is, but whatever, how he got there. You'll probably see a more modern cover there from Whiff and Stock. And so he formulates a syllogism, the universe began to exist, whatever begins to exist has a cause, therefore the universe uh, has a cause. So let's take these one at a time, the universe began to exist. The scientific evidence that I've put together from the sources include Big Bang Theory, the expanding universe, and the second law of thermodynamics. Again, more citations in here than I'm going to touch on, so I invite you to get the deck. So let's take these one at a time. First of all, the Big Bang Theory. Uh, So what is the definition? Scientists maintain that the universe began in a colossal explosion a finite time ago. So the significance says the universe has not always existed from eternity, according to Big Bang Theory. Therefore, the universe began to exist a finite time ago. So Paul Davis says, these days, most cosmologists and astronomers back the theory that there was indeed a creation when the physical universe burst into existence in an awesome explosion properly known as the Big Bang. Whether one accepts all the details or not, I'll tell you why I emphasize that. The essential hypothesis that there was some sort of creation seems from a scientific point of view compelling. So I know my fellow young earth creationists, because I'm a young earth creationist. One of the reasons why they let me speak at a conference when you've got such a titan of, of old earth creationism also there is because if you get nothing else out of this weekend, I want to be able to prove to you there's a way that a young earth and an old earth can love one another and respect each other, even if we disagree on some things. Now, I can't go toe-to-toe with Hugh on the age of the universe, and I'm not a Bible scholar, so I couldn't go toe-to-toe on his knowledge of the Old Testament or the Hebrew or anybody else here that's that. So you might go, okay, so the two most relevant disciplines to this, you don't know anything about, so why are you here, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so I teasingly say, I think God is keeping me a young earth creationist to counter the attitudes of people like a Ken Ham, for example, 
who rather than wanting to engage in a very productive manner with the rest of the body of Christ, who may be old earth creationists, rather than that, he vilifies them as he called me a compromiser. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm a, I'm a young earth creationist. I'm one of the good guys here. Ken, what are you doing? And Ken and I have actually debated this before, so you can watch that. I think it's on our YouTube channel, is it, Rebecca? So if you go to richardghow.com, there's a YouTube icon, and you can watch. Ken and I were debating. We were debating, is the issue of the age of the earth a matter of biblical interpretation or biblical authority? What we meant was, is it something that people can come to different views on because they have different interpretations? Or is it a matter of, well, if you don't hold this interpretation, you just don't believe the Bible? Like if somebody came along and said, well, I, I believe the Bible, I just think Jesus never existed. You would probably go, okay, that's not just an interpretation of the New Testament. That's really a repudiation of the New Testament. But I would argue as a young earth, whether the days or ages of periods of time or framework or literal 24 hours, that is an interpretive issue. And so somebody like a Hugh Ross can have just as much commitment to the inerrancy of the Bible as I do And we have different conclusions, if you will. So I sometimes, as I said, teasingly tell some of my students that I think God's keeping me a young earth just to prove that that's possible to do and try to disabuse them of the animus that's going on there. So uh, Paul Davies, by the way, is is an agnostic. Is that fair to say? Uh, uh, Dr. Ross knows knows him. And I've got several people like Stephen Hawking and uh, Robert Jastrow and Christopher Isham. I got a lot of quotes on the Big Bang. Again, you can get those from the deck. What about the expanding universe? Scientists maintain that every object in the universe is moving away from every other object such that even space... No, that's not right. I'm not moving away from the... Even space... I was like, how come I had so much time, hard time finding a parking spot if this is true? I'm going to ask Dr. Ross that during the Q&A. If the universe is expanding, why is H1 always a parking lot? <laughs> Give me a break here. Something's going wrong. Uh, but what they mean are these, these sort of cosmically sized things like galaxies and such. So what's the significance? The universe could not have been expanding from eternity, otherwise it would be infinitely dispersed, which is obviously not. Therefore, the universe began to exist a finite time ago. There's a website, in fact, that says, what does it mean when they say the universe is expanding? And it explains sort of the details of that. George Gamow says it this way, the entire space of the universe populated by billions of galaxies is in a state of rapid expansion with all its members flying apart from one another at high speed. Albert Einstein, Hubble's discovery can therefore be considered to some extent as a confirmation of theory of an expansion of space. So if it's been expanding, it could not have been expanding from eternity, therefore it had a beginning. How about the second law of thermodynamics? By definition, all isolated systems will tend towards a state of maximum disorder. Isolated system meaning no energy input. So your cell battery will eventually run down unless you plug it in. I saw a cartoon, and it was a scientist, and his, he was just disheveled, and his, just all, you know, his whole office was just a wreck. And on the door, it just said, Department of Entropy, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool. I like those kind of jokes. Uh, in an isolated system, the amount of energy available to do work decreases and become uniform. This amounts to saying that the universe is running down. So the significance is the universe could not have been running down from eternity. Otherwise, it would have run down by now, which it is not. Therefore, the universe began to exist a finite time ago. And you get it from the man himself who formulated the second law of thermodynamics, Rudolf Clausius. He said, we can express the fundamental laws of the universe, which correspond to the two fundamental laws of the mechanical theory of heat, in the following simple form. One, the energy of the universe is constant. Two, the entropy of the universe tends towards a maximum. 
Stephen Davis again says the law, second law of thermodynamics says roughly speaking that any change, in any change, the universe becomes a slightly more disorderly place. This natural tendency toward disintegration and chaos is all around us, or is evident all around us. People grow old, stars burn down, clocks run down, people go bald. Wait a minute, that's not in there. <laughs> Give that out of there. Robert Jastrow, one of my favorite to quote, the laws of thermodynamics point to one conclusion, that the universe had a beginning. The reason I like it, not unlike why I would like quoting Paul Davis, is they don't, as we would say in Mississippi and Georgia, they don't have a dog in the hunt. He wasn't a theist. He was an agnostic. And yet he, he, he wrote a very oft-quoted book in the apologetics literature titled God and the Astronomers, where he more or less chronicled his amusement, if you will, at the uncomfortable reaction increasingly his fellow astronomers were having as they were finding more and more about the universe. It seemed it pointed more and more to there being a God. And he was more or less going, why does this bother you so much? If that's the way the evidence points, then just go with it. But somehow you seem uneasy. And that's the book where you probably have heard the quote that the story ends like a bad dream. As the scientists are scaling the mountains of ignorance, they pull themselves over the precipice only to be greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And that's, that's the last paragraph uh, of the book. So of these three, then, the evidence for the Big Bang proves a beginning. The evidence for the expansion proves a beginning. And the evidence is second law. So those three together, then, all point to that first premise of the syllogism, the universe began to exist. Now, there also is philosophical evidence for the beginning of the universe. I would commend William Lane Craig's book, The Kalam Cosmological Argument, especially if you like Cantorian set theory, infinite set theory, Hilbert's Hotel, infinity machines, all those kind of talk in terms of infinite versus finite sets to try to give this mathematical proof that it is impossible that the past is infinite in time. Uh, so it's a fascinating read, and I'll commend that to you if you want some of that philosophical evidence. So that takes us then to the issue of having proven that first one, uh, what about whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence? Now, in my estimation, this is really fundamentally or ultimately a philosophical question. And so there it takes us into some of the issues in terms of David Hume. He's always touted as the poster child of, of disproving the law of causality and these kinds of things. So again, maybe some of that stuff can come up in Q&A, but we're not really, the philosophy is not really the subject but nevertheless, I think it's fundamentally. But there is one thing that's often brought up in the scientific conversation as a supposed counterexample that whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence, and that's the idea of virtual particles. The claim is that physicists have observed that certain particles arise out of the quantum vacuum. Personally, I like a Kirby vacuum, uh, but that's just me, you know. It just cleans a lot better, never mind. <laughs> uh, rise out of a quantum vacuum and thus comes out of nothing without a cause. But I would submit this, this is not what is going on with virtual particles. They are not counterexamples to the claim that whatever begins to exist has a cause. A couple of appeals to authority, John Barrow and Frank Tipler in their The Anthropic Cosmological Principles say it this way, the modern picture of the quantum vacuum differs radically from the classical and everyday meaning of a vacuum, nothing, the quantum vacuum states are defined simply as local or global energy minima. The quantum mechanical vacuum is not truly nothing. Rather, the vacuum state has a rich structure which resides in a previously existing substratum. In other words, there's a certain preconditions for even the virtual particles to do and be what they are in terms of the uh, antecedent states of, of this quantum theater, if you will. 
Martin Waukee says that the quantum vacuum is very different from the void of Newton. The quantum vacuum is a soupy morass of energy and particles in constant flux. And virtual particles derive their existence from the surrounding quantum gumbo. That's why I wanted to do, I just like that expression, quantum gumbo. It's, it's great with a white rice, by the way. <laughs> so whatever the full causal account of virtual particles might be, it is clear that their arising is not the case of something coming into existence out of nothing. And by the way, I know very little scientists, and Dr. Ross can enlighten us if he knows some, that would want to pay the price of giving up the law of causality in order to avoid the conclusion that the universe had a cause. Why would you want to pay that high a price since you basically just undermine the, the ability to do science at all? In fact, you really undermine the ability to make argument. I think in a very real sense, an argument, the conclusion is caused, if you will, by the premises. But if causality is nothing, then basically any conclusion could follow just as easily from any set of premises and it wouldn't matter. But if the fact that you think logic has some type of causal relation, intellectually speaking, already then is a tacit commitment to these causal relationships and the law of causality. So given the syllogism then, we've discovered then the universe has a cause of its existence. Now, more might need to be said in some context as to what is the cause, but at least it seems like it has to be immaterial timeless and spaceless since it's the cause of matter, time, and space. And Dr. Ross goes on to say, and there's several other attributes that follow. So if it's got a bill and it's got white feathers and it quacks and stuff, it's probably a duck, okay? That's the argument. And so you, you, you have to ask yourself, how could there be scientists like a Richard Dawkins, who's not an astronomer, but it's the same principle, could look the incredible complexity of the biological world right in the eye and not connect the dots that there is a God. As self-serving as it is to say, I think part of the explanation of what is it that makes Richard Dawkins exist is the influence of toxic ideas that have been seeping into Western civilization for several centuries so that now people can stare right into a starry sky and not, not connect the dots because they've been so deleteriously influenced by bad ideas, i.e. Uh, philosophy. And so sometimes I'm in, I'm in a situation and you, you wonder, well, how does uh, Richard Dawkins come about or this kind of atheist? And it might seem self-serving as a philosopher for me to tee up that question. And so I give this example that I call the OSHA example. OSHA, you know, is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So suppose a, a worker falls off a scaffolding in a factory warehouse and gets injured. And so OSHA shows up. And so they go, well, why did this guy fall off the scaffolding? Do you think OSHA would be satisfied if the warehouse foreman said, uh, gravity? That's, that's why he fell off. And they go, oh, gravity, thank you very much. And click that box and thank you, sir. And they're like, no, no, I mean, sure, gravity explains every fall. But what OSHA was looking for is not what causes falls in general, but why did gravity prevail in this instance? Were the straps not working right? Did he not get trained or whatever? In other words, gravity prevails where it ought not. So when I ask, well, what creates the kinds of people like a Richard Dawkins who can be a consummate scientist and still not connect the dots? People will say, well, because of sin. Yeah, I know. Sin is the reason why everything is wrong. Okay, I understand that. But why did it prevail in this situation? with this um, brilliant thinker who is a consummate scientist and still doesn't get, the, doesn't get it. Something else, I think, has to explain it. Somehow, intellectually, the straps were worn or re were removed or something. So as uh, James uh, uh, indicated when he graciously introduced me, my area is Thomas Aquinas. 
And Aquinas gives an argument, which I'm not going to give now because we're doing scientific things. But he shows his argument is not, it doesn't have nothing, has nothing to do with whether the universe began to exist. His argument for God's existence is completely indifferent. Even if the universe was eternal, it would still need a cause that is, the, that is God. And that's what his argument tries to do. Now, he's not indifferent to whether the universe began to exist. He just happens to think it's merely a matter of faith. The Bible tells us that the universe began, and that was good enough for him. So he, he didn't really bother with any kind of philosophical arguments in that regard. All right, so what about the question of design in the universe? God has caused design in the universe. I have a presentation that you can get titled, The Design Argument, Aquinas versus Paley. Some of you are probably familiar with Paley, the famous watchmaker argument. Well, I've discovered, uh, and others have helped me discover, how many people confuse the two arguments, and they think, and I like both of the arguments. I'm not denigrating Paley's watchmaker argument, but it is not at all Aquinas's teleological argument. They're just completely different arguments. But I started scouring the internet just to see, and almost without exception, everybody that I could find that talked about Paley's watchmaker always connected it to Aquinas. And then we find it first in Aquinas, and I go, it's not Aquinas at all. If you're interested in the differences between the two, then I invite you to get the, uh, the, the slide deck, the design argument, Aquinas. And maybe versus is not a right way to say it, because I like both of the arguments. So what, what do we say about design? I only have just a few minutes here. So let me just hint what the design would look like uh, in terms of the scientific evidence. Because you can see the design of the universe in things like how the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of life. In fact, Dr. Ross gave a summation of that, uh, hitting the highlights Thursday night. And a lot of the uh, University of Hawaii students were there, and a lot of medical students uh, were there, and it was a, just a wonderful night. And just left us all going, oh, we want some more about this. Because he, he's able to give a lot of details. He would, I was just blown away. It's even more than I even have learned over the years in studying this as an apologist, but as, as a non-scientist. Also, just the whole question of the origin of life, just the fact that there would be life and how it could. But there's also design with respect to living systems including design as information, information theory, what constitutes information as specified complexity versus order versus complexity, simply put. Irreducible complexity, this would be Michael Behe's famous mousetrap argument, the fact that there are systems in biological organisms where the system could not be reduced below a certain threshold before it just doesn't exist at all. So he gives the mousetrap of, well, you couldn't evolve a mousetrap by saying, well, I got a piece of wood, so that catches a few mice, and then I add a spring, and that catches more mice, and then I add a, a lever, and then a catch, and then I catch the most mice. You go, no, below a certain level of complexity, the mousetrap just doesn't work at all. And so Behe, in his um, Darwin's Black Box, tries to show how many systems in the in human beings, the, uh, the chemical cascade in the retina converting uh, photons of light into electrical impulses to the occipital lobe, so we perceive light, how that worked, the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the lungs, which is just mind-boggling of how complex and how fast that is. And he goes down to say, you know, if any of these things have been slightly less complex, if you will, they would not have evolved. And so what's interesting about that, I think, Charles Darwin actually said this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, 
my theory would absolutely break down. And I think that's what Michael Behe has demonstrated. Anyway, get the PDF deck and any of the others there and check out some of the slides uh, that additional points to make. But let's stop here. Thank you, Dr. Howe. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 